from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, FTX's $32 billion wipeout. Also, fast capitalism and how to restrain criminal bankers from sucking what's left out of the bank accounts of the middle and working class. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, on the election crimes bulletin today, a Georgia state court judge ruled out that voters can uh, uh, rule, I should say, that voters can go to the polls on Saturday after Thanksgiving, but it's a small victory in the face of Georgia's newly passed series of highly restrictive voter laws. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We are live today in San Francisco and Los Angeles, uh, coming to you over the Pacifica Radio Network. Happy to have you along. Well, we're going to begin this uh, hour by trying to talk about, well, uh, corporate greed and uh, the ability for some of the major corporate uh, criminals to resist almost any and all regulation. And joining us to talk about this is somebody who's been fighting the battle, the good fight, to hold uh, the the criminal investors, banks accountable. His name is Jim Henry, James Henry. His books include The Blood Bankers, Tales from the Global Underground Economy, and also The Pirate Bankers. He's a global justice fellow at Yale, a senior fellow at the Columbia University Center for Sustainable investment and the former chief economist of McKinsey and Company. Jim Henry, welcome back to Flashpoints. Now, it, it really does seem that that the, the problem here is we have a, uh, a criminal class of bankers and go-go investors who resist, who can sort of scare away even the most modest regulations and uh, along with the regulators. Well, the, the way this issue uh, uh, comes up this week is uh, that uh, the uh, Department of Labor uh, actually has the authority uh, when a corporation or a bank uh, that's been advising uh, U.S. pension funds, public pension funds, uh, gets convicted of a uh, uh, corporate crime. Um, it has the authority uh, since uh, the 1980s uh, to kick them out of the so-called Qualified Asset uh, Pension Asset Management Program. Uh, and all of the big uh, banks and uh, many of the private funds like BlackRock, uh, you know, make a big business out of this. So there's, there's something like $24 trillion uh, in the top 300 pension funds in the world, 40% of those in the United States. And so, you know, entities like CalPERS, which is $500 billion of of assets, uh, the state teachers fund. These are all uh, being advised uh, and pay hefty fees uh, for the advice from a, a lot of these institutions. Uh, in 2015, uh, Ralph Nader and I organized a session of the Department of Labor because Credit Suisse Swiss had been convicted of systematically helping wealthy Americans evade taxes, and they pl- pled guilty. Uh, to uh, corporate felonies and got a $2.6 billion fine 
Uh, and the Department of Labor could have kicked them out of uh, the program of advising U.S. pension funds. Uh, but uh, sure enough, it gave them a waiver for five years, despite our protests and our warnings uh, that Credit Suisse was uh, basically a serial criminal offender. Uh, and then in 2019, the Trump administration gave them another five-year uh, 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 waiver. And only this year, when they were convicted uh, by the Justice Department uh, of defrauding a, you know, an, of another U.S. conviction in, uh, involving Mozambique and fraudulent loans, uh, did the Department of Labor actually take action and give them a year to get out? Um, but, you know, since then, Credit Suisse has been engaged in criminal behavior all over the planet. And, uh, you know, the uh, our point in these hearings that were held this week to strengthen the Department of Labor's role was that there are a lot of institutions uh, that need to that really deserve a closer look uh, uh, just beyond uh, uh, Credit Suisse. We have uh, banks like Morgan Stanley that have been implicated in helping uh, wealthy South Africans uh, evade income taxes, setting up elaborate schemes to do that. We have uh, HSBC, another giant uh, bank with more than $100 billion market cap that's been advising U.S. pension funds. Uh, they've been caught with their hands in the Zuma gate in South Africa, you know, helping uh, Jacob Zuma, the former president, uh, steal money and uh, hide it abroad. Uh, They've actually been, you know, there's, there are very few countries where HSBC has not been tagged with some kind of criminal activity. Uh, but then you have U.S. institutions uh, uh, that have uh, also been implicated in this. And, uh, you know, so our point was, come on, Department of Labor, let's take a proactive stance here. Rather than giving these people waivers, uh, we want to, you know, be aware of the fact that some of the most important pension funds in this country are still employing people that are corporate felons. Well, this is this is problematic, uh, Jim Henry, uh, and uh, it does seem like these various uh, criminal operations, um, or should be uh, labeled criminal operations, really have one thing in mind. There, there's always a plan wherever workers or middle class or the working class has any stock, any money, any anything worth anything, they figure out ways to steal it. Uh, you know, I've been tracking this since the days of the SNL when there was that glorious moment, I guess it was under Reagan, where everybody realized what a beautiful thing deregulation could be. And we saw what happened with the SNLs, and then we saw it applied to the big banks. And then, you know, so essentially, talk about the 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 impact that these kinds of uh, sort of corporate criminal conspiracies to suck the blood out of um, everyday folks, how does, what kind of impact does it have now? What, what does this mean to us? Uh, what does this kind of corporate criminality mean in our everyday lives? Well, I think one of the things you have is a re recurrent financial scandal. You're quite right that the uh, deregulation religion has been preached since the, at least since the 1980s uh, by the financial institutions, by financial regulators. And it's increasingly been uh, adopted by both parties politically. 
but let's take the case of Credit Suisse in Japan in 1999. They were involved in a $100 billion tax fraud uh, in Japan. And the Department of Labor back then uh, was prohibited from looking at uh, foreign convictions by these banks. Uh, if it had, if it only waked up to, uh, you know, to kick pension and Credit Suisse and, uh, out of the uh, business of advising pen, U.S. pension funds, uh, we might have avoided their involvement in the Enron scandal in 2003, where they played a major role. We might have avoided their uh, role in the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, we might have avoided their uh, misbehavior that led to the, uh, you know, to their guilty plea in 2014, where they were convicted of helping uh, wealthy Americans steal more than $20 billion uh, and set up a whole uh, unit of more than 600 private bankers, secret unit inside the bank that had operated for years. Uh, helping these folks move their money abroad. Their attorney at that time was a guy named uh, Christopher Ray. Uh, so he was in charge <laughs> I've of negotiating. I've heard that name before. Oh, uh, yes. Well, he's the current FBI director. Uh, so not surprisingly, <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> you know, White-collar crime, uh, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, Credit Suisse got off with incredibly uh, lax uh, sort of settlement agreement. Department of Labor, as I mentioned, didn't uh, kick them out of the of the QPAN program. They went on to keep advising U.S. pension funds. And just two weeks ago, we found out that they hadn't even complied with the settlement agreement that they signed up to to, to uh, uh, in in 2014. They got a tax deductible, two point six billion dollar fine. Nobody went to jail. Uh, they didn't lose their banking license, and the Department of Labor allowed them to keep on advising U.S. pension funds. Uh, you know, and this is just one example. I mean, if you add up all of the corporate crimes, the pro- deferred prosecution agreements that these banks, uh, big banks, have been engaged in since 2000, you know, Deutsche Bank, 40, uh, Credit Suisse, 35. Uh, uh, Morgan Stanley, 60 uh, cases of uh, deferred prosecution agreements or convictions involving financial crimes. HSBC, 28. UBS, 50. Uh, Bank New York, Mellon, 9. Goldman Sachs, 33. J.P. Morgan, 68. I mean, these are, you know, the financial institutions that our pension funds are relying on for investment advice. And it's just... Uh, you know, outrageous that there isn't more scrutiny of their misbehavior. That's astounding. And in terms of the actual uh, jeopardizing of the pension funds, are there examples uh, of... Um, well, if you take a look at, you know... Go on. Yes, one please. example, if you look at the New York State funds, uh, New York City funds, which have really been struggling to pay the bills these days under COVID... Uh, New York State Common Fund now has about uh, $270 billion. Uh, New York City Fund has about the same amount. Uh, Their actual growth rate of assets has been uh, very mediocre in the last half half decade, where everybody else in the stock market was profiting. Somehow, uh, the folks who are managing these New York State funds and advising them, uh, uh, drawing hefty fees, 
you know, were just mediocre at best. They were losing money. And when you look at them closely, where did they come from? Um, the manager for the New York State Fund came from BlackRock, you know, the largest wow. uh, uh, investment fund in the world. They managed $10 trillion. It's, you know, far and away the largest in the world. That's not all pension fund money by any means. But, you know, what what seems to be the pattern is that these public pension funds are getting saddled uh, with very expensive management, most of which comes from the from the uh, private uh, sort of banking and uh, private investment community. Uh, and they just have not, uh, you know, sort of compared to the returns that other kinds of investors have realized during this period, public pension funds are not doing nearly as well as they should be doing. Um, so, you know, we have... Uh, Actually, I think much more scrutiny. Pension funds should be under under scrutiny because this is people's, uh, you know, vital retirement uh, funds. I mean, the, uh, people are going to rely on these uh, for for their, you know, protecting their life savings. In the case of public employees, teachers, uh, firemen, other kinds of workers, the police. Uh, you know, they're all uh, <laughs> they have their assets being managed by a system that doesn't exclude criminals. You know, the, I discovered the the depth of the sort of the criminality within the political system when I came upon the likes of a Penny Pritzker. Have you ever heard of Penny Pritzker? She oh. was the reason why Barack Obama got elected president. Just as an aside, she was running the Obama campaign and her brother was running the Clinton campaign. So one way or the other, those folks were going to win. Yes. Uh, but well, Penny Pritzker had a bank. Uh, uh, this is before she went to work for Obama. She crashed a bank, Superior, I believe it was called, for millions to taxpayers. I think something like 14 1,400 investors lost their money because of Penny well, Pritzker. Go on, I'm sorry. But this is, they get away with this. You have to mention the Prisker family you know, to go back in time. Please do. Enough. Go right ahead. Well, I'm, all, I'm old enough to remember. I mean, the first, very first investigation of offshore banking that I did was of a bank that was based right. in Nassau, Bahamas, called Castle Bank and Trust. Uh, and uh, the Pritzker family, I think it was Penny, maybe her father, actually. Her father. The, at that point, the, the uh, central state's pension fund, uh, which was notorious to kind of a teamster racket, racketeering, you know, Jimmy Hoffa and all the rest of it. And they had an attorney called Burton Cantor from, from Chicago who had worked with a fellow named Paul Helliwell from Miami to set up this offshore bank. And they had this incredible number of prominent U.S. clients who were uh, parking their money offshore illegally in trusts. And they, the clients included the Pritzker family and, you know, the Hyatt Hotel chain, uh, Charles Dolan and, his, uh, you know, the, the Cablevision uh, guys, uh, Bob Guccione, uh, Hugh Hefner, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. That was my most depressing find. Um, but, you know, all these folks were basically channeling money offshore. And this was 1981, you know, so... Actually, the bank had been set up in the 70s, in the, in the late 60s, and they'd been up, up to no good for a long time. And the reason they got off without being prosecuted, all of these very prominent wealthy uh, uh, Americans, including the Pritzker family, 
was that Richard Nixon appointed uh, Donald Alexander as head of the IRS in in uh, in 1974, and he came in, and in the name of civil liberties, he uh, denigrated the IRS for having employed a private eye to go after these folks, uh, and he closed down the entire investigation. Nobody was ever prosecuted. And uh, just last year, finally, after looking at this case for 30 years, I got the treasurer of Castle Bank and Trust, who's retired long since up to Canada, to say, you know, um, there were always rumors about one other client of the bank. And I want to tell you, you know, in my waning days on the earth, uh, yes, it is true. Richard Nixon had two accounts at Castle Bank and Trust. Um, so, uh, you know, this is, this is, uh, you can't make this up. I mean, this is beyond, I, I, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I, I like to see. No. No, no. This is, unless, of course, it's a, a criminal conspiracy. We see lots of those, lots of planning yeah, to defraud. We do. Yeah. We see all kinds of criminal conspiracies. But what I'm talking about, this is this is hard facts. I mean, we have now documented evidence of all these folks having fun. And so this behavior that you're describing of impunity for, you know, very wealthy investors when they engage in uh, financial chicanery and the banks that let them do it, um, you know, is a long time uh, kind of American, great American tradition. I, I would say that when it comes to the pension fund side of it, here we have the Department of Labor uh, having had authority to basically uh, automatically exclude uh, these you know major institutions that we're not talking about random behavior by you know a handful of rogue. Op operators within an institution. Right. You know, in the case of Credit Suisse, we're talking about uh, time and again, sort of systemic uh, culture of corruption over and over again. Uh, but even in, in those cases, uh, we find that this industry is so politically influential uh, that the, you know, federal agencies and the state agencies have backed away from uh, you know, cracking down on this behavior. This, the top 30 uh, fund managers in the world, I added up the numbers uh, for 2012 to 22, provided, spent $1.4 billion on lobbying and political contributions. And, and just this year, they spent $92 million in this election cycle. So you're up against some heavy hitters here. You know, when we had our testimony the Department of Labor hearing that was held virtual hearing on Thursday, everyone showed up from, you know, the <laughs> the very well-heeled uh, bank lobby, uh, the securities industry lobby, the BlackRock types, uh, you know, who had a stake. And we made the point, you know, none of us on the other side of this issue are paid. We are doing this because we really <laughs> want. I heard that. Wait, yes. I want to find the person on the other side of the argument uh, who is not paid to advocate for, you know, the, you know for the, the. I mean, they were really saying basically we don't need any regulation. Trust us. I don't remember 2008. I don't remember the 1930s. We don't remember any financial crisis. You know, uh, just a total laissez-faire. Well. It, it, it is troubling because, you know, I mean, we, the, the, uh, the working people of the world, the middle class, the working class, you know, we're struggling. 
and we're getting squeezed. And these folks, these corporate folks, they don't miss a trick. And they are, as we learned in the meeting that I, I listened to the, your presentation and some of the other fellows, um, you, you, you all don't get no respect from these Guys, it seems like almost, and I'm talking the direct, the regulators are really seem to be afraid of the bankers that they, and the investors they're supposed to be regulating. It seems like they're sort of blown off very easily. Well, what's the problem well, on what, the regulation I'll, side? Yeah, I think there are a couple of uh, decent regulators there who ask some intelligent questions. I was yes, impressed with yes. uh, you know, some of them try, trying to say, uh, Basically, industry, are you telling us that we should go out of business? The Department of Labor has no function at all. That you that the pension funds of the world are going to be uh, better at investigating banks' behavior in Mozambique than you know than we are, or the federal government in general. Um, but I think the problem is, is is a structural one because it isn't very profitable to be a Department of Labor regulator, but it is very lucrative to be a former. Department of Labor regulator uh, who goes on to take a position in private industry. And so there's a revolving door. You know, some of these people who are going there, unfortunately, it's it's become harder and harder to imagine lifetime careers in public service in the United States. So, you know, there's this huge revolving door that goes on in Washington. You find so many people who are working for the bank lobby or working for the, uh, you know, the financial services industry in general, not just as lawyers, but as lobbyists, so many of them were, you know, former staff attorney on the finance committee, uh, former Department of Treasury, former Department of Labor. It's just this huge kind of, uh, you know, sort of, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, sort of goat rodeo, really. I mean, it's recycling (laughs) the same material. And everyone has figured out that this is the way to, you know, to basically profit. Uh, from wow. a career in public listen, service. Listen, we're running out of time, and I, I do want to tap your knowledge uh, on another thing. I, I'd like you to just spend a few minutes with us talking about FTX, cryptocurrency, because we hear about it all the time. I, you know, I, I have a partner who knows a lot about this stuff, but I don't think any of us really understand the nature of cryptocurrency and what happened with FTX, where uh, it the company went from something like $32 billion in assets to zero uh, in a very short period of time. Well, you know, we're in the process of figuring that out, but in a nutshell, it's just kind of outrageous uh, unregulated fraud uh, does you know it's nothing new under the sun here we basically it's just speeded up and so you had a company go from uh basically ftx's job role in this situation was to operate as a kind of exchange they were involved in taking in uh dollars from investors and then holding on to the dollars and saying well we will buy the crypto for you and we will hold those investments that was one of the activities and then they were doing lending and they were doing a lot of uh, acquisitions at the same time so they held themselves out as you know we are the responsible ones in the industry uh we will uh, make sure that we're investing carefully on your behalf you know the ultimate idea behind uh uh, cryptocurrency and it's a complicated area but i I think uh was that there it's possible to basically have public 
trans, uh, uh, totally transparent uh, formulas as a substitute for regulation, as a substitute for banks, uh, and to have a much more competitive, open system that kind of polices itself. That's the model. And that's the libertarian kind of dream, you know, the, the line about, um, you know, what's the difference between a terrorist and a libertarian? You know, you can negotiate with a terrorist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> these people are... Hey, you're talking to a vegetarian here. Go on. Yeah. They have absolute faith <laughs> in uh, this perspective. And, you know, sort of, I guess they'd be in favor of legalizing dueling. But the... Uh, <laughs> The bottom line is that in this case, the, extru- the once you open the door to totally unregulated, very complicated uh, financial behavior, you always get fraud. And in this case, this fellow who is putting himself forward as a you know as a do-gooder, a big contributor to the Democratic Party, gave you know he's number four on the list this year, seventy million dollars to Democratic candidates, including most of the key people we know and love in the in the Senate, uh, these, uh, this guy was basically helping himself, uh, you know, to billions of dollars on the side and, and, and helping himself to his client money. We, we're not, we haven't gotten to the bottom of it. And, and speaking of t- pension funds, there are some pension funds that actually invested in FTX in Louisiana, wow. for example. It's, uh, you know, it's a good example of where, you know, uh, uh, finance is like is, is like the fashion industry. These things, you know, there's a there's a certain fetish about the new and the cool. Um, and a lot of people get into it based on just momentum trading. So, you know, when you have that kind of uh, uh, alternative investments going on, it, it blows through all of the traditional kind of prevent preventive mechanisms that we like to rely on. And to this day, I think the, the Biden administration has kind of been asleep at the switch. They, they didn't want to appear to be opposed to progress. So they had this guy, Gensler, who was from MIT. And he was, you know, uh, he was a former professor at MIT, claimed to understand all about uh, crypto and uh, the various uh, uh, aspects of cryptocurrency and, you know, fintech. Um, uh, actually, his uh, <laughs> uh, his protege, the guy he was reporting to, Glenn Ellison, his daughter, uh, turns out, re- was running the subsidiary of FTX that was stealing all this money, alleged to have stealing money. So, uh, you know, the, it's a kind of a close, a, a sort of a small group of folks who were involved in this, who all knew each other and were, you know, uh, and, and kind of going back and forth. But I, I think that that's not the essence of the problem. The essence of the problem is that we have adopted this sort of neoliberal, hands-off philosophy that, uh, you know, the private sector must be, mustn't be, must know what it's doing. And, uh, you, know, uh, pens- that, you know, the pension fund managers, they must be able to assess these advisors by their own. Why do they need the federal government uh, to be involved? Um, you know, that's, Every time we have a financial crisis, we learn for about 10 minutes that that point of view is absolutely wrong. Um, but you see it over and over again. So. You, you know, just before I let you go, I, I've heard, you know, uh, 
various descriptions of the positive nature, what, what, what we could gain from cryptocurrency, that there could be, for instance, a, a competition with Western Union, with all these families, say, in the United States, sending uh, money back to families uh, in you know Central and South America that they would that they are totally ripped off by uh, Western Union and other like corporations so cryptocurrency could do something beautiful in terms of uh, allowing them to hold on to most of their money are there any positives or is there well, anything I mean, I know a lot that, about yeah, yeah. I know a lot about that because I, I wrote some of the first uh, articles about remittances and the outrageous cartel that yes. uh, Western Union money, MoneyGram had been running, uh, you know, in, in places like Haiti and Guatemala, Philippines. Uh, they were charging after, you know, about 5 to 10% uh, to transfer money back to Haiti, which depends on remittances for now about 35% of its foreign exchange and uh you know it's just like a tax on the poorest people on the planet who are you know responsible for you know uh half of haiti's gdp so you know that's a great subject but the idea that crypto has any role to play in that area is really uh ludicrous what we need to do uh is to get the cartel out of the way uh and you know it isn't FinTech can be useful in that. We've I've helped uh, some uh, some efforts involving the Philippines to, to take advantage of FinTech for doing that. But uh, you know, it, it's not it's not crypto that's going to make the difference. Uh, it's uh, political will to take on the influential uh, organizations like you know uh, Western Union in particular uh, that have been living off this kind of ex- extraction uh, uh, and this uh, control of these remittance flows. You know, the world's remittance flows dwarf foreign aid uh, by a factor of seven or eight in terms of total. That's amazing. It's a 700 to $800 billion a year of remittances from people, poor people working in Western countries and sending them back to developing countries. And foreign aid budget is somewhere you know, struggling to get a hundred and 20 billion, let's say, orders of magnitude. So, you know, and this aid goes directly to the people. That's the thing about remittances. Uh, and Western Union has been, you know, about, uh, I would say about 10% of the, of the, of the money is, um, is, you know, sort of inflated cost. And so we could easily see if they had effective regulation, another $60 billion a year going to poor people just by remittance reform. Um, well, but I think that requires more regulation, not uh, not Bitcoin. Well, listen, uh, we've been speaking with James Henry. Jim, it's always great to have you on. I hope you'll come back and uh, keep talking to us about these incredibly important things. You, you're our translator uh, into the world of economics, trying to understand what's been happening to us all these years. I want to tell people you're, uh, you're an attorney. Uh, your books include The Blood Bankers Tales from the Global Underground Economy and uh, the Pirate Bankers. You're a Global Justice Fellow at Yale, Senior Fellow at the Columbia University Center for Sustainable Investment, and many other things. Uh, thank you for your valuable time. Well, you're quite welcome anytime. Thanks. All right.
All right. Take care. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. And it's time for another edition. We're fighting for the vote of the Election Crimes Bulletin. This whole election is being rigged. The election is being rigged. It's totally rigged. Yes, Donald. It's rigged because your cronies rigged it. So says Rolling Stone investigative reporter Greg Palast. You're removing black voters from the voter rolls just so you can win this election? We will treat those people from January 6th fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons. So you didn't call him, but you challenged his right to vote or have his ballot challenged. Sir, get out of my house. Okay, I will get, get out, out of your house. house. I just... Now. It's now time for your Election Crimes Bulletin with Greg Pallast. And this is Dennis Bernstein with Greg Pallast. And Greg, I want to tell you, I finally saw the whole film at once. Amazing. <laughs> Vigilantes is amazing. Congratulations on that. You should get five academies and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, but things are uh, moving apace in Georgia. Uh, the battle continued. It went to court today. There was a tiny victory uh, for if if you're on the side of uh, if, if you're a Democrat, it was a victory, a tiny victory, Republican, not so much. Uh, what happened today and why uh, is it not going to end the problems that Georgians are going to face, continue to face voting? There's a teeny weeny victory for democracy. I mean, in this case, also the Democrats, but democracy got something. Um, the okay, there's a like, basics. The, there's a runoff between Senator Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, uh, the incumbent, uh, against Herschel Walker, the football star, Republican candidate. They're in a runoff because Warnock. Uh, officially won by only 35,000 votes, which uh, in under Georgia law goes to runoff. Now, Warnock won the runoff last time, that is last January, for this short term, um, because and part of it was that there was 60 days for people to prepare for the election, including elections officials, and a long period of, of registration and early voting, and Warnock walked away with it. This time, in panic, because not only Warnock, but uh, his uh, Democratic confrere John Ossoff won, and so did Biden. They decided, well, we better change the rules on this runoff. So first, they cut the time for the runoff by more than half. And that meant that, well, how do you have enough time for early voting? Remember that voting officials have to, because the brand-new election, they have to print ballots. They have to... Uh, set up uh, election stations. They have to hire workers. It's almost impossible to turn around and quickly do early voting. So there was no early voting last weekend. As far as I can tell, there's no early there's no early voting this weekend. And they and under the new SB 202, you can't have early voting on the weekend before the election. That sold you know sold to the poll Sunday. Because, you know, the legislature realized that's when black people vote en masse. So they simply banned souls to the poll day. Uh, there's no voting. Now, um, that meant because you're squeezed just before the election, you're squeezed at now. That left a single weekend where you could vote, a single Saturday. And then uh, the uh, the secretary of state who originally said, oh, well, I guess we only have one Saturday to vote got uh, calls from uh, the GOP, and then suddenly says, oh, I have, that's a mistake. There's no Saturday voting. There's no time because 
the Saturday um, uh, will be uh, on the twenty uh, ninth, or uh, will be on um, two days after. Well, two, within two days of a holiday. Now, two days after Thanksgiving on Saturday, Sunday's two days after another holiday, which is now simply called officially called State Day, whatever that means, because it was called until recently Robert E. Lee Day. So they were celebrating Robert E. Lee in the Confederacy. For that reason, for the celebration of the Confederacy, well, I think it's appropriate. There will be no Black Voting Day because uh, overwhelmingly black people vote early. And so basically then this one judge, so then Warnock and the NAACP sued, uh, including my lawyer, Jill Griggs, sued and said, well, give us at least that one Saturday to a judge. And the state, you know, where the, the state, this is ridiculous, plus the state law is really, even the, you know, the Secretary of State, the Republican, first said, yeah, there will be Saturday voting. Then he said, oops, no, I didn't mean that. So the judge said, come on now. And the judge also noted, who is at, the judge who is African-American said, that's the day I vote because I work, as you may notice from this bench, I work five days a week, sometimes six. I work you know, <laughs> morning to night. I, there's short hours in Georgia polls. I can't go to the polls during the week. So you, know, there's, uh, so you say I shouldn't be allowed to vote. And so the state backed down. So they got one more day of voting, just one single Saturday where you're allowed to vote in Georgia early. Most of the polls Saturday one day. Yeah. Now, course, I should mention, uh, by the way, the numbers. Yeah. Here's the numbers. Okay, two other numbers to realize. Number, uh, By the way, I should also add, when you cut early voting, you cut Dropbox voting. Because the whole point of Dropbox is that, well, it doesn't matter when the polls are open because there's just a Dropbox with a surveillance camera on it. And we've had that discussion. There's no fraud in that. But they've taken the Dropboxes, which are outside for convenience, so you can, you know, on off hours and your people work double jobs or shifts can drop their, uh, their absentee ballot in the mailbox. They've now said lockboxes must be locked away. That is, they have been moved inside the early polling stations. You can only drop off your ballot during early voting hours. Not, by the way, they're not even available on the on election day. So if, you're, if there's a five-hour line, you have a ballot in your hand, you can't just drop it in the box. So by cutting early voting days to next to nothing, in fact, most counties will have only five days of early voting instead of three, the normal three weeks. Five days of early voting in one weekend day, one single Saturday. But then the drop boxes will only be open five days and only during uh, business hours. Now, why is that important? Because mail-in and drop box votes break two and a half to one Democratic. So when you knock out that number of votes, and, and if you think it's small, it ain't. We, because of the change in laws already, the number of mail-in ballots, which includes drop box ballots, dropped from 1.28 million to one to 0.2 um, million. In other words, a million ballot drop, 81 percent. This will probably drop the early vote by 99 <laughs> percent. I'm not kidding. So, and that's all basically again two to one Democratic. And the worst thing is. That Fulton County, which wanted to add another day, wanted to have 
seven, six or seven days of voting are going to lose a day because now Fulton County is the heart of Atlanta. That's the heart of the black vote, the heart of, of Warnock's vote. But the way that they timed it, while they said you to get an extra day of early voting, you have to certify your election by a certain day, which couldn't physically be done. When they crushed this early voting, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that they were going to that they were going to take days away from Atlanta. They knew that they were going to take days away, that they were going to eliminate souls to the polls and virtually eliminate mail-in voting. In other words, the GOP does not trust the voters to pick their senator. And that's what it comes down to. All right, listen, Greg, we have a few more minutes, and I I do want to talk to you about the appointment of a um, special counsel. Now, you know... There's the political side, but there's this other thing that we've been talking about in terms of all you have to do is declare that you're running for dog catcher and then you can't be prosecuted for mass murder because it'll seem like you're compromised. Uh, you're you're being prosecuted for the wrong reason, you know, political uh, and the prosecution is political in nature. So now this keeps coming down. Now, now the Attorney General of the United States has come out with, sorry, too close to the election, can't prosecute. Now, anybody, and you know this, Greg, how many times have editors uh, told you when you're working, when it's getting close to election, you know, it can't get too close to the election because it'll look political, so we, we're not going to publish it. You know, lots of newspapers, lots of magazines I've worked for have rules about one month, two months, three months, depending upon what the article's about. But this is this is out of control. What do you think of the declaration that he it was too close to the election to prosecute Trump? You think so? You think, or is that a problem in terms of prosecuting criminals? We have we have two problems here. For, first, there's the legitimate issue in that you shouldn't have political prosecutions. We shouldn't be using the, proce- the prosecutorial process to punish political enemies ever, no matter whether the election's in five years or, or five days. And we shouldn't do that. Like we saw the, the you know, like finally the federal court stepped in when the Trump Justice Department had the political prosecution of Michael Cohen. And they said that you're throwing this guy in jail just so he won't speak about Donald Trump during an election right? in solitary confinement. It was crazy. So, you know, yes, you shouldn't be using every uh, using uh, prosecution for political purposes. But the other side of the coin is no man is above the law. No man is above the law. That's one thing. We are a nation of laws, not men. We don't have, we have a sovereign, you know, Trump, once and, and so did uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, try to declare that they were exempt from uh, testifying in these cases by sovereign immunity, as if they are the kings. We don't have kings. Sovereign immunity applies to the state. You can't sue a state in certain circumstances. You can't sue the federal government. But this is not the, it's not a protection for a king or a prince or a governor or a president. No man is above the law. And we're starting to kind of inch into that by saying, well, if again, if you if you're like Brian Kemp was allowed not to testify until the day after his his race with Stacey Abrams, because he said it was political. 
Well, that means, again, well, if I'm going to run for office, if I'm going to commit a crime, maybe I want to, uh, you know, uh, if I'm going to knock off the 7-Eleven, I should declare for state senator at the same time. You know, ex- excuse me? <laughs> this is a very bad pre- – I'm laughing, but it's a, it's a really dangerous it's profound. precedent. It's profound. You know, no man – That the attorney general would back law. off. I mean, this happened – this this attempt to overthrow uh, the election happened, what, 18 months ago? And yeah. all of a sudden, this the dude realizes, oh, there's an election coming up? No, well, the other this thing is that at least there will be a special counsel who will be, who is known as very nonpartisan guy, which is bad news for Trump because the evidence is, it looks like the evidence is the evidence. Uh, there will be a special counsel uh, who is uh, being transferred from the war crimes tribunal at the Hague. That's good, and I think that's appropriate. And let's and I also kind of want to take Garland, Merrick Garland, out of the equation of making that decision because no matter what he does, it's going to be political. If he decides to prosecute or not prosecute, right. leave it to leave it to the special prosecutor. And the only problem is we've had special prosecutors, you know, with Mueller, who said. Oh, I can't prosecute anyone. At least I'll say for Merrick Garland that he actually put in. He's like, wait a minute, you're a special prosecutor. What do you mean you can't prosecute anyone? Isn't that kind of the, the, the job title? Um, you know, it's like a dishwasher saying, well, I've been hired to wash dishes, but I can't get my hands wet. So uh, at least this at least this time, um, Merrick Garland did have enough brains to put in that the special prosecutor will have the power to prosecute. I know it's a tautology, but he had to put it in. But he did, and that's significant. So it's not 100% bad, but obviously if they're going to stick with this old – and this comes from an old memo written during, uh, I think, the Clinton administration saying you can't prosecute sitting presidents or someone running for office. That's not in the law. That's not in any court case anywhere. It is simply a memo written while Clinton was president by one of his – you know, uh, Justice Department cronies, so he wouldn't be indicted while he uh, for a crime while he was sitting as president. Very uh, troubling. I, I mean, I, we know, Greg. We you could see this coming around the long bend uh, that this was going to be Trump's modus operandi, that he would have to declare. No, who's surprised that he? You know, was the earliest what declaration in the history of running for president. But who was surprised? Because everybody knew that was the kind of little trick uh, he could he could pull in order to sort of, you know, throw a cast a little bit of doubt on the prosecution and, and to really sustain him. This, this, I believe, given the possibility for all the uh, appeals that could follow this kind of investigation, if they do indict him, takes us through the next election. What happens on election day when Trump's running? Well, well, I mean, where, where are we, Greg? This is problematic. You, we're in, you expect we're in a little territory. violence, a little bit of violence, uh, maybe? Well, I'm very concerned having been down in Georgia and going back to Georgia. As you know, people who've seen my film. And by the way, I do want to announce that VigilanteMovie.com, you can see the film for free between now and the end of the Georgia runoff. And so VigilanteMovie.com is available for free under, you have to make a solemn promise because it's only for Georgians, really. But you can watch it 
as long as you tell someone in Georgia what you what you learned and send them the link, vigilantemovie.com. But um, it, it, no, we do have uh, this. You're, first of all, I appreciate you're the first news person who's mentioned that one motive for Trump's early announcement is to throw a wrench into his prosecution. And no one's talked about that. They say, oh, he's trying to preempt DeSantis or whatever. Come on. He's trying, you know, this is, it's a brilliant way to stay out of uh, breaking chains, uh, breaking rocks on a chain game. Yeah. Um, this is what, you know, so I do agree that this is a very big danger that we somehow immunize candidates or politicians. That's a brand new, con- we haven't done that in America, or at least not right. officially. This is it, what I, you know, obviously we all know that people, presidents have literally gotten away with murder, but we've never made it a policy before. And this is a very dangerous business. It really is. Got to leave it right there. Greg Palace, gregpalace.com. Check out the movie. It's great. It'll blow your mind. Greg Palace, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. And you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. And uh, we're going to have a new segment these days uh, presented by the great sort of alternative linguist, um, visionary, uh, rescuing the language back from the male chauvinists of the world. Listen to this. Oh, and I, by the way, I want to let you know that we are going to stay very closely on the story with Greg in terms of what happens, who the special counsel is, all that kind of stuff. Um, All right. And I think now we've got uh, our uh, new segment. Listen to this. I'd like to introduce you to my new book, Mama's First Pocket Dictionary. Taking the Dick Out of Dictionary, written by me, Sherry Glazer, with Kim Tripsmith. As the patriarchy falls, destroying everything in its path, we need to get ready for the next big paradigm. This is my latest effort to contribute to the shift from patriarchy to the all-inclusive matriarchy, making sure there is room for everyone at the table next time around. Now, you may be asking... Who does she think she is to challenge the potency of 5,000 years of status quo? Well, I'm Sherry Glazer. Most people call me Ma because for the last 40 years, I have, through theater and comedy, embodied, elevated, revealed, and sanctified the sacred mother and the feminine in my many forms. From portraying Mother Earth in Oh My Goddess, a comedy of biblical proportions, to bearing my boobs for peace in the street theater of breast knot bombs, I am the great mother's representative. I speak for her. And I know and believe that language is a superpower. And how we spell the words we say empowers their essential vibration, which in turn creates the material world we live in. Words matter. In fact, One of the first spells we ever hear is abracadabra, Aramaic for I create as I speak. So if every word I utter excludes or interrupts the feminine, 
How can she matter? Spelling originated with witches, who are most famous for casting spells. Witches were burned and spells were hijacked by patriarchs and employed to put letters in certain order, spell them, to create the world they envisioned. Unfortunately, their plan was to suppress and dominate the feminine, and they did a really good job of silencing us. Evidenced in the word history. That's his story, not hers. I'm talking about the constant affirmation of repetitive sound vibes, sound into form. And when the language we speak on a daily, moment-to-moment basis excludes the presence of the feminine, we tend to disappear, not be seen or heard, dismissed. And all this was built like a wall into the English language to keep us out, starting with the number one bestseller of all time, the Bible. In other words, long time no see. Most of the words having to do with women or anything of importance have the words man or have the word he in it. We are penetrated by him to the core of our existence. Bottom line, he is the dick in dictionary, hiding in plain sight. We affirm a zillion times a day he has power over and through language. In Mama's first pocket dictionary, we respell over 150 words by removing the masculine and elevating or infusing her. In fact, let's start here with taking the he out of her. If I were a child and I had to guess how to spell her, I might say H. You are. And that would be correct. In fact, it is the phonetic spelling next to the male-dominated one. Changing the spelling also helps with the pesky conversion of hero, which is commonly shiro, ugh. Her with a U easily becomes hero. U is one of the most feminine letters because visually it is almost a perfect symbol of our uterus our openness. Now, let's take the he out of she, shall we? This is a cool conversion because instead of you, we use I, which is another empowerment. Instead of S-H-E, we respell it to S-H-I. Sounds like she, which is the energy of the body, like in Tai Chi or Qigong. That raises the speaker's vibration and activates she instead of interrupting her. In the dictionary, one of the ways we rate or qualify words is with a vibe meter or VM. When we alter the spelling to something more aligned with the feminine, we get a lift, a thrill, a laugh. It rings a bell. Because we make this long crossing over the bridge to the feminine paradigm, we like to ring a bell to celebrate, chime in, attract attention, and call the congregation and chorus. And an angel gets its wings, too, for an added bonus. So, in these flashpoint segments, every time I respell, reclaim, or repair a word, I will ask you, the audience, to repeat the word out loud, seeing in your mind's eye the new spelling. Then 
I'll use it in a sentence, and you repeat after me. Then I'll ask, does it ring a bell? You're under my spell. Spell binding. In this episode, we've respelled H-E-R to H-U-R and S-H-E to S-H-I. Now, let's use them in a sentence. She is my hero. Does it ring a bell? You're under my spell. Spell binding. And because you are now under the spell, you will start to notice how many words are dominated with he, man, men, sir. And we invite you then to interact with our website, contribute your word, and we might use it in Mama's second pocket dictionary. Thanks to Dennis Bernstein each week here on Flashpoints, I will introduce new spellings and you will be further initiated into the feminine linguistic rebellion and help spread the seeds of resonant language needed to prepare for and express the new feminine paradigm for the good of all waiting for us on the horizon. Next week, we will explore the invasion of the words man, men, in a huge category of words that shape the power structure of our lives. Until then, you can learn more about Mama's First Pocket Chictionary at www.pocketchictionary.com. Hey, check it out. This is Ma Sherry Glazer for Flashpoints KPFA. Thank you, Sherry Glazer. This is Dennis Bernstein for Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is a new segment in which we're sort of um, questioning and sharing the great work of um, rescuing back the language from the masculine. How about some balance in this world? I'm all for it. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I know this you won't mistake this show for any other show. <laughs> and we will talk to you Monday. I need the weekend. Good night. That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>